This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So if you want to know what the financial community is reading about this Friday, here you go. This story, one of our most read, it's been uh, trending very high on the Bloomberg this Friday about how the fate of the world's largest ETF rests on the health of a group of 20-somethings. Good luck with that. Rachel Evans is part of the Bloomberg News team who, who wrote it. She is ETF reporter at Bloomberg News, and she's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Great, 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 great story. So tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so this really relates back to this this quirk uh, in how the first ETF was set up back in 1993. So we're delving really into the realms of investing history for this one. So for most uh, in ETF and investing geeks, uh, everybody knows SPY. SPY is this 250 billion mammoth ETF that, that tracks US stocks. However, it now seems like, you know, that we take the ETF industry for granted. But back in the early 90s, they were looking for a way to create these traded uh, investment vehicles that see mutual funds didn't trade on exchange they wanted something that would so they started looking at structures that would facilitate some kind of fund to trade and one of the ways that they had to to do to structure this was to get 11 names into the documentation to dictate the termination date of this particular trust sounds kind of crazy and and a lot of people that i spoke to about it thought it was pretty crazy but that's kind of what's written into the documents so what's the result of this then what does it mean so it basically means that this trust the, the the spider spy biggest ETF, it will expire. It has a set termination date, unlike most other ETFs out there, which just go on and on forever. Right. This trust will expire 20 years after the death of these 11 individuals or in 2118, depending on which of those is first. Who are these people? Do we know? <laughs> yeah. So we went out and we spoke to them. Uh, we tracked down a list of their names. They're, they're all uh, individuals sort of aging um, from around sort of 26 uh, to 29. Uh, and most of them were related to someone who was at the American Stock Exchange, which was the exchange that actually set up the first ETF. They seem to be chosen pretty much uh, not because of what their parents did per se, right. but because they were the right age. You want to have young kids, babies, ideally to name so that they have the longest lifespan possible. Um, so we went out and spoke to these guys. You know, they, they vary in jobs. Some of them attending bar. Some of them are going to grad school. Uh, some are sales reps. Uh, some are engineers. Uh, and, but they're all spread around the country. And until we spoke to them, had no idea that their names were included in this way. So, uh, and they're not the only one. The SPY is not the only one set up. There's a, there's a handful or a little bit more than a handful. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this is very much uh, something that's idiosyncratic to the first ETF. So SPY is obviously one of those. Uh, some of the, the ETFs that, that came out just after that, the, the QQQs, um, obviously mm-hmm. very popular for tra- tracking tech stocks. Um, they're I, set up that way as well? They're set up that way as wow. well. Yeah. Um, so really, there's, there's this handful of very early ETFs. The biggest, um, oldest ETFs were, were set up in this way. Of course, around, I think, 2000, um, you know, people started moving away from uning, using unit investment trusts that require this to, to using kind of a sort of an open end fund structure. And we started moving away from this. So it's a, it's a kind of weird idiosyncrasy of this handful of funds. I'll say, oh, my God. And like I said, uh, this is what folks are reading on the Bloomberg. It's a fascinating story. Rachel, thank you. Thank you for writing it and uh, coming in and telling us about it. Rachel Evans, she is ETF reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter and also go to Bloomberg.com uh, to read the full story as well. Dr. Dr.
drum beats you are hearing from some of the presidential hopefuls, most predominantly Bernie Sanders, is Medicare for All, expanding the government health insurance program for the elderly to cover all U.S. citizens. Well, it would be costly, by some estimates, costing the federal government at $32 trillion over 10 years. That's some of the research that we've looked into here at Bloomberg. And it would be, like many things, complicated. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back. He's clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to see you. This is a big issue. It's a big issue. Thank you for having me. And not just the presidential candidates, but I think the country as a whole is involved. And they understand that, uh, you know, we do have a health care crisis. Health care accounts for approximately 18% of the GDP, about $3.5 trillion a year. And we are not ranked the highest in outcomes. We're one of the most um, expensive, costly health care systems but unfortunately our outcomes are not great. The problem with Medicare for All, if implemented immediately, would probably be a stock market crash. You know, uh, United Healthcare, 250 billion, uh, Cigna, Aetna, Anthem, all of these are, are very valuable um, uh, stocks and yeah. high market caps. Theoretically, they would go down a lot or maybe to zero. Uh, people's pension plans would not be very happy if that were to occur. So we need to figure out a way to focus efforts to reduce costs, to improve outcomes. Uh, the five, uh, 5% of the population, the sickest 5%, accounts for almost 50% of the health care spend. So we need Medicare to, does. Yes. And exactly. the reason you talk about the impact on those companies is that in terms of reimbursement rates, right, they would go way down? For those firms? Well, theoretically, if we yeah. have a government program, a national health service like Canada, where, by the way, wait times for, to see doctors can be very long, joint replacements can be very long, if done at all, specialist times can be very long. I'm not sure we're really ready to adapt as a society to not getting instant doctor appointments um, your CAT scan next week, you know, scans, MRIs, joint replacements can take weeks or months in other countries. But yes, the, that, that sickest 5% needs to be targeted and other countries definitely do have more access uh, and somewhat better outcomes, but they're also smaller. Canada has 30 million people. We have 300 million. We have a million. massive system. So how do we, I mean, is there some way to cover all U.S. citizens? That's certainly what Ob Obamacare set out to do, right? Because we're trying to figure out how do we, you know, cover the uninsured? How do we avoid people rushing to the emergency rooms, which it, drive up costs there's, dramatically? There's, so how do we approach it? There's tremendous waste. There's definitely some fraud that goes on uh, as well, both by patients uh, with, with false claims and, uh, and probably some physicians as well. Uh, we really need to integrate, uh, and I'm working on a plan, uh, really to integrate uh, having our private health insurers cover more people, not just sort of cherry pick uh, the people who can afford their plans and, and uh, company-sponsored health plans. I think we can find a way to integrate, cover more people, use the expertise of these private companies in better managing care, reducing costs. So I think there are options in that area. And that's a big part of it. I think you and I, and certainly around this table, we've had this conversation before in terms of managing care so we do not get to crisis situation. And I think we need to, as a medical community, as well as a patient community, kind of look at this very differently. 
We spend about $11,000 per person versus other countries in the seven, six, $7,000 range. Say that again. We spend $11,000 a year per person in the United States, right? $300 million times 11, $3.5 trillion. Versus? Versus other countries that spend 7000 6000 5000 Netherlands, Canada, Scandinavia. Look, their populations are different. We have much more obesity. We have much more diabetes. We have much more fast food. We also have liability costs and legal a, costs. A thousand and, percent. And at, so at least four percent um, uh, is related to tort reform and defensive medicine. So we really need a comprehensive approach, which may make tort lawyers or other, other interests uh, upset. We're, we're going to have to sort of reinvent the system, and not everyone can get their piece of the action. What's the first step we would need to reinvent the system, in your view, Ian? You know, I, I think we actually need to sit down in Congress, have Republicans, Democrats, and experts come in and really uh, weigh out together what's not being covered. We need to align incentives. You, the patients who come in are not incentivized to lose weight, take their medications. Doctors are paid for the problems not to prevent disease. So we need to get everyone with aligned incentives to reduce costs, to get healthier, to eat better, to exercise more, to take your medications. I think we can do it, but I think we need to refocus. Part of it too, not every 80-year-old or 90-year-old will be able to get a hip replacement, you know, next week. Not everyone gets access to the intensive care units. How do we make, and I think about, I know individuals who are running their own businesses and they constantly talk about, certainly under Obamacare, but just the expensive cost. Starbucks pays more for healthcare than it does for coffee beans. These companies have become health insurers more than, than their products. But even it's individuals, huge... if you're running your own business, like the healthcare costs yes. are, it, so, so how do we ultimately bring that down? It's, it's going to take some work where we are going to have to, uh, one, get a universal health care uh, record. Uh, at this point, there's so much waste. You can go to a hospital on the east side, come to the west side, and we can't access your records. Right. If we had one universal health care record all across the country, as other countries do, we would not have to duplicate tests. We could consult with each other. There are many, many things to do to really bend that cost curve. Right, and I feel like we've been having that discussion about all the information that's we out there. We have more to discuss. We do, and I know you'll be back. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too, thank you. Dr. Ian Lusbader, he's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Coming up, another one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg. It has to do with Zillow. You might recall we had a great story in the magazine earlier this year about Zillow wanting to flip your house. We'll talk about why Zillow was under pressure today. That's coming up on Bloomberg Radio. We have it all? <laughs> well done, Sam. Our producer on this Friday, uh, picking our music. Didn't we almost have it all? I mean, General Electric shares, man, they have been on a tear in 2019, up about, mm, still up about 27% this year on expectations that the new CEO has figured out a turnaround and really working on improving the cash position and financial position of General Electric. And yet it's really fallen into uh, a bit of a stumble this past week. Uh, that comes as no surprise to our Brooke Sutherland. She covers the company. She's deals an industrial columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You've been saying, all right, everybody, we know you're getting up, up beat but it's still a big kind of uphill uh, move here. They've got a long way to go. They do. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of questions about the fact that they 
raised their cash flow guidance for the full year. Um, they had previously said they may lose as much as $2 billion this year, and now they're saying, oh, it might not be that bad. We may even have positive $1 billion free cash flow. But there's something that's not quite adding up on that. Right um, now, was it for the most recent, was it down? Five, cash flow was negative $5.6 billion? It was not not great in the most recent <laughs> quarter. It was actually down almost a $1 billion. Yeah. So okay. um, they are you know, negative so far for the first six months of the year. They do say that they're seeing a little bit better than expected performance in that power unit that's been giving them so much trouble. They're cutting back on restructuring. But at the same time, not included in that original forecast was the fact that the Boeing Max grounding according to GE, is going to shave about $1.4 billion off of cash flow this year. So the the numbers don't quite add up. And so right. I think there's some confusion as to all of the moving parts here and whether this is really as great as you know GE might like us to believe. So it's not just um, the Boeing woes, right? It's more than that. No, not at all. I mean, that's sort of an added headache for them, but they were already in a very tough spot going into this year. And the big issue, of course, is the power business, but mm -hmm. they do also face cash challenges in their renewable energy business, which is, you know, saw a big surge of orders uh, on the back of, you know, some regulatory situations. And then now they're having to fill those orders and, you know, make all the investments to do that. And then, you know, there's some questions about the cash flow at their aviation unit, even beyond what's happening with the MAX. Um, so why is this feeling like it? Well, obviously not new to you because you've been, you know, kind of raising the red flag here. But I do wonder why, like, all of a sudden it's coming out here again. I think a big, and maybe taking some investors by surprise. Right. I mean, I think a big part of why you saw the stock come down so much this week in particular has to do with interest rates. Um, so GE, more than most companies, is very sensitive to fluctuations in interest rates. And that's because it has such a huge, outstanding, uh, unfunded pension. Um, but it also has that long-term care insurance business, which right. if you remember, you know, they had to say that they had a $15 billion reserve shortfall for those assets. Um, they make certain assumptions on their investments as far as how they're going to fill those reserves. And those are in some ways based on interest rates. And so when you have this environment and we're now talking about interest rates taking another step down, then that could swell that force GE to put even more money in to sort of backstop its reserves. And right. so I think that's been another big factor this so week. is Larry Culp I mean do, is he taking the right steps do people feel like he is moving in the right direction I mean he inherited all of this to be right. fair I I think that he is and I think that he's trying but the reality is this is a, you know it, it's a tough situation and this was never going to happen quickly and he has There's said only it so would be a multi-year transformation he has absolutely I mean I think Personally, GE would like um, you know more credit earlier on, but they still have very much to prove. There's still a lot of questions about credibility. There's a lot of questions about the ultimate value of the underlying assets. And investors assets. have been patient for a long, long time. Right, and now you're coming into a macroeconomic environment that will not be beneficial to these turnaround efforts. So not only, I mean, one of the unique things about GE's situation is that they had such significant struggles at a time when all other industrial companies were doing very well. Right. You start seeing you know a, more of a manufacturing recession, particularly if that starts to invade the aerospace and defense space, that becomes much, much more difficult for Larry Culp. All right. For, so for someone who follows this company, follows the industrial space, I don't know, Brooke, you know, I don't know how much more time we give GE in terms of figuring things out, but what do you want to be seeing from the company over the next six to 12 months? I, you know, I hate to put things in such short duration, especially when Culp has said this is going to take us a few years to figure out. But nonetheless, you know, we're watching this company. 
I think they could do a lot more on the transparency front um, and being upfront with investors on all the different puts and takes in their business. It's hard. Like I said, this is a complicated company right. with a lot of moving pieces. But we and less complicated be, than it used to be, right? To some extent. To some extent, yes. I mean, bit. they've done a lot of divestitures, but yeah. it's fascinating how much of a black box <laughs> it still is. But yeah. I mean, we shouldn't be sitting here and having all these questions about what's really happening with the cash flow. Did they actually raise the guidance? Is it more dire than it really looks because right. of the max? Like, that's not conversations you have about Honeywell or United Technologies or things like that. And so I think that would be a huge step towards you know sort of boosting investors' confidence and, and giving them you know, the faith and the fact that Larry Culp is going to run things differently than the past managers of GE and that some of these bad practices are really behind them. Right. And not a conversation you want to be having at a company that you think has already laid out kind of all the problems. Brooke Sutherland, thank you always. Uh, love checking in with you. Deals and Industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. everybody. Round and round we've gone this week. It looks like those major equity averages are going to finish relatively flat here on the week, despite a fair amount of volatility, to say the least. It is time for the drive to the close. Joining us once again is J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. Firm has $1.3 trillion in assets under management. J.J. joining us on the phone from Chicago. How happy are you that it's Friday? <laughs> I think everybody in the market, you've watched this last hour, Carol, and it was just like exhaustion. It's a, uh, a a march to get through the rest of the week. I think everybody's had quite enough movement for one week. How, how I don't know. Hmm. Let me let me go back for a second. What kind of sign or should we read into that the markets for the, over, for, for the most part are going to end pretty much flat on the week overall, despite the dramatic selling that we saw on Monday and the bounce backs. What does that say to you? And I feel like when it comes to U.S.-China trade, we're kind of not quite, but almost back where we started. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think I believe last time I was on with you, I talked about the fact that I think that this keeps us a little bit artificially range-bound, the uh, U.S.-China negotiations, because it's one of those things where, you know, you get we're, we're in a range where if you get above 3,000, people are a little bit on the S&P 500. People are a little bit like, oh, it seems kind of high, don't necessarily want to buy here. And then you sell off and get below 2,800, and it's like, well, I don't want to sell anymore here just in case things get settled. So uh, it, it really is just we're, we're watching the sausage being made, so to speak, and we're seeing negotiations in a different way than we've ever really experienced before from the government. And I would expect for your listeners to expect a lot more of it as the year progresses. This has taken longer than anybody's thought, and I don't think that there's any reason for us to believe that it's going to be suddenly settled. Well, and safe to say and fair to say that's just another page from the President Trump playbook. Uh, we've certainly seen this on a lot of other matters. In the meantime, all right, so it's volatile, but you have to still make decisions for your institutional clients. Uh, when they call you and say, what should we be doing in this environment? Or you still have to manage their money. You still have to look for yield in this environment. How do you do it? Well, I think that it's really interesting if you look at uh, not only our clients, but in general, uh, one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of months has been a little, uh, a bit of a shift in that our clients actually have been net sellers of equities over the last two months and buyers of fixed income. 
But what's interesting mm-hmm. about the fixed income that they're buying is it's very short duration. Uh, you know, I'm hearing that a lot lately. Yeah, yeah. The, the primary amount of it is six months and less, which tells me that there's a tr- still a very pent up demand to buy stocks. Uh, you know, we saw some buyers here when we had sell off the other day. I still think there's a big demand to buy stocks, but the problem is people want it, it, nothing's ever certain, but they want a you know more sense of certainty at least around tariffs. And I do think that that's one of the things that's been lacking in earnings calls so far is companies talking about the fact that they were going to invest in infrastructure because there's not a sense of certainty. If you're a CEO and you buy back stock, you're probably not losing your job. If you go and invest in some infrastructure, be it a building, technology, whatever, for new business that may not come because of tariffs, then you get fired. So that might not affect us now, but Two, three years out, that's the one thing about what's happening right now that really does scare me. Well, and what's interesting, too, is our Dave Wilson just did his chart of the day, and I kind of love it. Uh, it's He talks about smaller U.S. investors so pessimistic about stocks that they may have set the stage for a market rebound. And he takes a look. Uh, it's basically bulls versus bear. Uh, just 21.7% of the participants in a survey, we're talking about the American Association of Individual Investors, right? And they take a look at the bear bull sentiment. They say, so just under 22% were bullish in the week ending on Wednesday. More than 48% were bearish. Uh, And so that gap favoring the bears by more than 25 percentage points for just the 10th time since mid-2009. After the early instances shown in the chart, the S&P 500 index has an average gain of almost 10% during the next three months. So there's a lot of bearish sentiment. You talk about a lot of folks moving into fixed income. I'm guessing that those investors, though, may be eager to move back into to equity markets, you know, get some more yield as soon as they feel a little bit more comfortable. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we do our investor movement index every month. That's what I referred to earlier. Yeah. And rather than just a survey, it's actual trades that people are making, which I think is a more accurate portrayal. Where yeah, are they putting their enough. money? Yeah. And so with that, you know, we've seen that they've had a desire to take less exposure to equities, more exposure to fixed income, exactly what I was saying. So this does back that up overall. And, you know, the, it, it, what's interesting to me is that the FANG stocks are actually an area where our clients, you know, Apple being the number one held stock at TD Ameritrade, that's one of the, the, the stocks. They've sold Apple two months in a row. So it's very interesting how people also want to take profits where they can, to your point about putting money in shorter-term fixed income. So I believe if we do see any type of settlement, this pent-up demand for stocks will come to the market pretty quickly. I just don't see that happening over the next uh, few weeks. So we've also had a lot of uh, conversations involving where we are in the economy this week, watching the yield curve, uh, what's the likelihood of a recession. Your research notes point out how the Atlanta Fed's GDP now indicator, something we talk about a lot here at Bloomberg, the estimate for third quarter growth remained at 1.9% on Thursday, unchanged from before all the turmoil of the weekend leading into Monday and so on for the rest of the week. Um, So we're not seeing that change dramatically. No, it, it, it's, really, uh, it's really kind of interesting from that point of view. You know, it goes back to where you started. The yeah. market hasn't changed. A lot of dramatic stuff has happened in the week, but at the end of the day, things aren't changing that dramatically. So uh, I, I think that's kind of an interesting parallel for both of those numbers together. Hey, just got about a minute left, JJ. Where would you be committing then new money at this point? I think that the, where you have to look is, uh, you know, the, the high,
high yield stocks in this interest rate environment, particularly the blue chip ones, you know, uh, you know, you think about like a AT and T, Verizon, etc. Uh, I, I just think that the demand is going to remain for those type of stocks because we're in an environment where even if things look great, does the ten year go to two point two, two point three percent? So, you know, you may be afraid of what's going on in the market right now, but again, looking at high-yield stocks, it feels like there's a bit of a demand, and as I say, particularly the ones where people feel if we go down, they may lose less, so to speak, than some other high-yield stocks that, shall we say, have a little bit more risk to them. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Have a great weekend. JJ, you thank too. you. Thanks, Carol. JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. $1.3 trillion in assets on the manage, uh, under management. JJ joining us on the phone from Chicago. All right. Just got about uh, four minutes left in today's trading session. Quick check on those major market averages. Uh, taking another leg down here in our last few minutes of trading. Uh, so we're coming off our highs or uh, we were hovering around our highs of the day. Definitely still off our lows of the day. But uh, down about 17 points on the S&P 500. Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 72 points. And the NASDAQ down nearly one full percentage point. We're talking about a decline of 74 points. Stick around. We've got the closing bell. Your movers and shakers right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.